Well, that's actually excellent. Because um, this is not a relaxing conversation, although it's not a non-relaxing conversation. Uh, hi, hi, Heyman. How? Hi. How are you both? Good. Well, we're fine. We have uh, we have this room this week, and we have. Um, a room on cultural toxicity right. next week. Yeah. And Barbara, I hope you will invite. Um, oh, Heyman, you have to do it because she's. We have to get her on call. It. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's good. I I actually tried to have a room on solving the homelessness problem. Um, a couple months ago, <laughs> only one person showed up. So, uh, solutions Nobody based cares. Yeah, no solutions cares. based rooms are very difficult to get going. Arguing rooms are easy. Well, you know that's pretty pathetic because this is this is. is this is a horrible. Um, problem. I mean, this is a problem that has, it's spreading. It's totally spreading. It didn't used to be in Europe and now it's in Europe and it didn't used to be in, um, you know, even in most cities in the United States. And now it is. And there's got to be a way that we can fix it or at least help fix it. It's created this, what I call double apathy. Uh, And what I mean by that is people don't care that they don't care. And, uh, and it's not until, it's not until. What what do you mean they don't care that they don't care? I call it double apathy. Don't care that I don't care, you know? And, uh, and I, I really believe that when you open your eyes, you open your eyes and you really look at these homeless encampments that are really creating, and we call, don't call it homeless, we call it vulnerable people in Canada. I, mean, I, I don't yeah. know if you heard yeah. that, but we reframe it to vulnerable people, right? Uh, because that really gives a whole different distinction, you know, when you say vulnerable, right? Well, what, what are they vulnerable? Well, they're vulnerable to any everything. They're vulnerable to abuse, neglect, being ignored, um, you know, sexual assault, drugs, I mean, you name it, right? So, and since the pandemic, it's, 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 it's just, it's enormous around the entire world, right? Well, well in Phoenix, yeah. um, and, and by the way, anyone in the audience, unless you're a troll, if you would like to come up and speak, I would love to have you. Because I, this is my history. My history is that I spent 10 years on the board of the homeless shelter in the greater Phoenix area, which takes all the homeless people from the surrounding what used to be small towns. Um, and they're not small towns anymore because uh, they've all grown in the last 10 years and tremendously. And what we did was we built what we called a campus of care. And we thought we were so brilliant. Um, we put not only, we got some land donated by the city of Phoenix, and we not only put the homeless shelter there, but we put all the wraparound services. We put the, the food services, the government services, the the uh we put a dental clinic, we put healthcare services, we even had education, so tutoring, education services, job development services. It wasn't just a homeless shelter. It was, a, you know, it, it was like, as we called it, a campus of care. And I sort of bowed out during the project because through this Campus of Care project, I got involved with one particular vulnerable family, and I ended up um, 
having them, not having them, but I ended up, they had no food in their house and no milk. And the reason was that the parents were crack addicts and they would sell their food stamps for crack. And so I then um, would be feeding their children. So finally, my husband and I decided, this was 25 years ago, we decided that we would become foster parents. And we took this foster family into our home. And I'd like to do a room one week on foster parenting because that's another can of worms. But as far as the homeless problem was concerned, in the beginning, you know, everybody was so, we, we just so totally patted ourselves on the back because people came from all over the country to look at our solution, quote, solution, unquote, to the homeless, um, the homeless problem. And what did we find? Well, we had a number of interesting findings. The first was that many of the people we attempted to serve were drug addicts. And because you had to be... um, you had to be be sober while you were receiving services. They wouldn't come. They couldn't get sober. They wouldn't get sober. They didn't want to get sober. And they thought that uh, these services, which, which, and I guess I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I, 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 I understand how they felt about it because they immediately said, um, you can't interfere in our lives. If we're going to use substances, if we're going to drink, you know, and you won't let us into your homeless shelter, well, fine. Then we'll just do what we did before, which is, you know, camp out in the streets. So that was one issue that we found. Another issue that we found was that we had separate facilities for men and women. And this was uh, not thoughtful for homeless families because they didn't want to be separated. So that let out another niche group of people who didn't want to go into the homeless shelter. And then... That's a sizable number too, right? uh, Yes, exactly. And it's gotten bigger. It's like, uh, according to the last stats that you have from the U.S., it's like overall the homeless population, as of 2020, though, this is just pre-pandemic, was 580,000 people uh, classified as homeless, experiencing homelessness. And of that, 171,000 people were people with families. Right. And and, and so exactly. yep. a, a lot of people chose rather than, you know, they chose to live in their cars and they chose to camp out. In other words, the shelter we built, which we were so proud of and so, and so thoughtful about what a great answer that was, was an answer to, and you know, this is gonna, anyone who's got a history of hanging out in Karma Club is gonna understand that we come back to this uh, over and over again. This was a solution for single men because the easiest, you know, group to to you know to have to serve was single men, and so they would they would be willing to to come, and not only not not even all of them because a lot of them were drinkers, and I'm going to. let Susanna introduce herself because yes. she's new to the stage. Yes, I, I would love to just add before Susanna, just add one more thing. There's a bigger thing here. So 59% of youth, uh, so my sister-in-law is in the Covenant House. She's uh, one of the managers there or the executives. And uh, it's for uh, home youth, youth that are homeless. But they say that 59% are uh, from average and upper income households which is pretty interesting. So they, they picked the streets as a safer option than staying at home. So that I just wanted to add that. And I know, Susanna, you have an amazing story. So um, 
Welcome, Susanna. Great. Your story, Susanna. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, but, uh, I'm not sure which story um, you're thinking of, Barbara, but I'm Susanna Kunkel. I'm a realtor in the greater Philadelphia area, obviously helping people find housing is, is my passion and my career, um, my second career at any rate. This is close to my heart um, and very painful reality of where we are in, in post, so-called post-COVID. I'm very appreciative of the space that you've created here in the discussion. You know, they talked at uh, the beginning of 2020 about a K-shaped economy, and it just seems to be the suffering and the negative impact of what's been happening in so many discussions is just swept under the rug. Um, you know, the wealth gap is greater than it's ever been, and, and the affordability crisis is worse than it's ever been. And, and quite often, I, I, I'm in a lot of rooms trying to understand the market, housing market, economy, listening to people from Wall Street, all the different angles, because it's more complex than it, I think. It's unprecedented how complex our housing situation is. And case in point, um, and maybe what uh, Barbara's referring to, I had shared in the room, for instance, my own daughter's housing struggle um, as a case in point. You know, she left uh, unhealthy relationship. She lost her job in COVID. She came, she was in Hawaii. She came to the mainland or some people call the states, although Hawaii is a state. She literally was homeless from October of last year until she just got her new apartment about a week ago and moved in. And, and I tried to bring this up, you know, in all transparency and vulnerability. Some of the people on this topic, you know, they're well, she, uh, Barbara knows it. She's working in Sedona in hospitality and I was saying a lot of hospitality workers in Hawaii and high priced so she, like went from, she went from one place where the people who serve the people who come can't live to another exactly exactly okay but well, she was next... recruited for her career I mean they recruited her to yeah. come work there she's well qualified and so many hotel workers in places like Hawaii and Sedona are literally living in their car or living with family or she hasn't been living in her she's been living in hotels for almost a year uh with three kids and a dog and um her in sedona um is not in sedona she was at one time driving an hour and a half to work each way to be able to have you know a look but what happened what was helpful was her managers came up with it, her, the VP for the company she works with, recognizing it's not just her, they had a general manager. And a well, you, you went into the some, Yeah, sorry, I had a call. So they had some empty units as timeshare that they allowed staff to live in and pay a reasonable rent while they're looking for housing because even at the management level, let alone the worker level, it's just an absolute crisis. And I was trying to share this, for instance, in this other room, and the gentleman just said, well, she shouldn't have to live in Sedona. And then somebody else said, well, they have to make adjustments. Well, as it stands, of course, the Bank of Grandma... You know, that... Wait, I cannot stand people saying that. Because I live in Arizona. I've lived in Arizona for 50 years. Arizona has always been um, a more affordable place to live. In the last two or three years, housing prices in Arizona have gone through the roof. And living in Arizona has become as, as pricey as living somewhere like L.A. And the it, the arizona has a very uh large tourism it's not just sedona but arizona is very dependent on tourism and very sensitive to what happens in the tourism and hospitality industry and it, it, this is not going to come you know um at a time when it can help your daughter but at least 
the state has figured out that if it's going to continue being a player in the tourist industry, it's going to have a place for workers to live. And so it's trying to figure out now an economic development related plan for worker housing. And I, I so totally, I was in Sedona this summer and I so totally understand, you know, what you're saying because the person who waited on me when I had lunch at this, you know, at this really beautiful restaurant told us that she drove an hour and a half to work and she was pregnant. And, and, you know, I was like, she said, can I bring you anything else? And I was like, no, <laughs> you shouldn't be bringing me anything. I should be bringing you your, your life is so difficult. And well, Suzanne, I feel for your daughter, but now let me tell you the story of my own daughter. My own daughter is not poor. She sold a house in Half Moon Bay in California and she moved to Bend, Oregon. And she thought, oh, I'll just take my cash from my California house and I'll buy a house in Bend. Well, there is no housing in Bend because Bend is one of those places where when the pandemic came, um, when the pandemic came, everybody fled to places like Bend because people. it's gorgeous and you can work remotely. And so houses in Bend, which was a sleepy timber mining town, have shut up. And now Bend is as expensive as California. And my daughter has not been able to find it's not that she's homeless she's living in an apartment but she is not able to buy a house and she's hoping for prices to fall because in the past since covid housing has become unaffordable for a large segment of america and uh, there's also a lot of stories about rural America where, you know, everywhere from Montana to all resort areas, of course, the areas that are sort of tech, uh, tech, uh, the entrepreneurs everyone love, right, working from, um, their locals are actually fighting it right now. But they can't do anything because they're, they need the tax dollars, they need the revenue, they need the services coming in. So it's a tough fight. And as employers, as Susanna was saying, uh, are uh, trying to figure out ways and they build up these housing complexes for their employees. Some were living in trucks and campers just so they could work in the, make a wage, but still they couldn't find an apartment to rent because everything was bought up and renovated for the Airbnb and the other communities. Oh, that's another, that's another complicating factor is Airbnb and VRBO. Yep. That's exactly right. Pe people now, people now who own houses, uh, uh, very often own two or three or four houses and they and they rent them out short-term rentals and that's another thing that influences the housing supply and and um and you know what's going on in the united states but let's see what jay has to say jay has his hand up and also north from the Collins side was asking, Susanna, are you okay driving and chatting? He was commenting because he was saying that don't, please don't podcast and drive. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for the care. Yeah. Jay, what have you got? Do you have a solution? Hey, how are you doing? Good. Do I have a solution? No, it's uh, an extremely complicated issue that we're going through right now with a whole bunch of moving parts. Um, what I will say, though, is I'm on the, just give a little bit of background, I'm on the West Coast, I'm in Canada and British Columbia, near Vancouver. Vancouver. Vancouver's been unaffordable since I was a girl. You got it, yeah. I'm actually specifically on Vancouver Island, and even Vancouver Island's crazy. Like it's, you know, it's, you're looking at 700,000 for a regular house right now and something decent, you know, is even more than that. But, um, 
I understand like the current economic times. Um, it, it's tough to make a living, right? No doubt about that. It's tough to get a home in certain parts of Canada, though. There's other places where it's not so bad. I'm talking about Alberta, Saskatchewan, parts of Manitoba. Basically, if you're a little bit away from any major city, it's a little bit more reasonable. Um, attributing the, you know, the housing and things like that, yeah, it's certainly a factor. But I don't think it's as big as a factor as people make it out to be. Um, the drug use is... It's it's a next level thing than it was before. Drugs these are very 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 powerful and inexpensive, which is a big deal. Fentanyl is the majority of people that we see on the streets. Well, they're a lot of them are addicts, unfortunately. Um, there's also underlying issues too, for sure, mental and for some people physical, definitely. But the power of these drugs nowadays is something to take into huge huge consideration. Fentanyl is you know, what they say, be a hundred times more powerful than heroin and obviously extremely addictive and it's very inexpensive. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I have absolutely no um, experience with fentanyl, but there is a public park uh, around my neighborhood that has been taken over by fentanyl addicts who, who live in tents. There's a, an entire tent campus over there in that Certainly. park. You, you have to kind of think, too, how can people live in those kind of conditions? And to laymen's and regular it's people. It becomes 115 degrees in the summer. At oh, yeah. least they did it. But what I'm saying is to a regular person, it's, it's hard to just, you know, a lot of people will drive by in a camp and be like, oh, my God, like, I feel so bad for these people, which naturally you would. The people who are living there, though, especially the ones who are addicted to fentanyl, are not to say happy. I'm not going to use that word. I'm going to kind of tread carefully here and try and speak about other people's feelings. I have talked to multiple people who are highly, highly addicted, and they would tell me this. Look, man, like, I can be in an alleyway. It can be pouring out rain. I can be laying on the ground. And as long as I have that hit, everything feels perfectly fine. Like, it is the, whatever's going on in my life, doesn't matter how horrible, as long as I do this drug, everything feels normal. Everything feels fine. Well, that's fine. an insoluble problem. <laughs> right. how, how do you solve but that problem? Hold on. I think we should also clarify a little bit of things, though, right? Because we, we are not using, like, homeless people are majority not on any substance abuse, right? According to the latest stats from at least the Addiction Center in the U.S., uh, 38% of people, homeless people, have an alcohol dependency, that means that they actually have a physiological dependency for alcohol. So it's a medical uh, condition. So, And also 26% of them actually have a harmful chemical substance abuse. And also there's a 33% of homeless people battle with a mental illness. So that includes everything from bipolar, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, especially with the homeless veterans, major depressive disorder, and severe anxiety. And so not everyone Heyman is, on... is a doctor, can you tell? Oh, no, but I mean, I just want to make sure that not <laughs> everyone, not everyone is basically on drugs or on addiction. But and also what else is this? Like there was a there was a comment what somebody made is oh, I don't want to give money to someone because they'll use it on alcohol. Right. And there was a retort. I remember a retort and I stuck with me. It's like, what else are they going to do? Right. They can't afford anything else. Let them at least have something. Right. I mean, we, yes, we can't make a decision. Hey, man, right? if you give me money, I'll spend it on alcohol. Sure. And I, I, we, we're like, we can't say anything to you about that, right, Greg? Like, right. it's yeah. your choice. But at least we Could should I provide talk... them this, this options. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think this part of our discussion right now flashes back to the Reagan era. I mean, this has been a dynamic with homelessness since Reagan, you know, lived in San Francisco. However... I guess, kind of circling back to the fact of our current economic crisis, the unseen homeless. I mean, they're, they're what we're talking about are the visible homeless who are addicted, who are on the streets, who are in tents. And, you know, I just told my daughter's story as one example, but we have an, a tremendous upsurge of working homeless, of people who are couch surfing, who are living out of vans, as you mentioned, who are the unseen homeless, that it doesn't tie into the same issues of drug addiction or alcohol addiction. It has to do 
with the economy and you know like even back to my daughter's situation she finally found a place to rent however half of her income goes to rent now and, and that's like has, my other daughter that's like yeah. Suzanne and that's even worse in, in some respects and she has to, she's in flight staff so she drives an hour each way and she works long hours and she has three boys a single mom um, i'm going to introduce her to amanda amanda works <laughs> in a factory she has three boys she's a single mom they have a lot in common but you know the amanda has uh let me say a rent subsidy in in case of in case of a tie, as my father used to say, Amanda, who, who used to be my foster child when she was a child and is now a grown working woman with three, three sons, um, every, in case of a tie, she gets a rent subsidy from me because I'm not going to let those kids go homeless. I bailed their family out before because I couldn't stand the thought that they were going to go homeless. And what percentage and, of the, do you know what percentage of the homeless population is female? Well, that is a very interesting question because, uh, and very hard to find out. Hayden. Actually, I have I the number. To... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's what I was asking you. <laughs> yes. There are stats. There are stats. There are stats. Yeah, they are. So the, apparently 40% of the homeless population is female. Transgender is yeah. 3,000 of the 550,000. And there's non-binary as well. So, I mean, the, the numbers-wise, and also post-pandemic, we don't know how many of that due to, like, you know, uh, spousal or partner abuse and all that is also not reflected in these numbers, right? Because these are 2020 numbers. Well, and, and actually, you can't really afford to live apart from your spouse now right. because you can't, you either can't set up a separate household or you can't, um, or, or you can't, um, you know, afford it. You can't find a house. All right. So let me, let me say just a Dr. Few Francine, things. I have a solution that you can yes. advocate for in your community. Yes. And it's actually being implemented in a lot of states. So we have two, two of the problems we have at the moment is homelessness. At, one is obviously homelessness and, and the, the price of rent. And another problem we have are um, office vacancies in many, many cities. And in, in a number of states, they are funding the um what what do you call it the uh i guess the the transfer not the transfer the conversion the, yeah, yeah the conversion the, thank you yeah. doctor they are they are offering incentives for developers to convert office space into into rental space which if you believe in jane jacobs is is kind of a good idea for a number of reasons but that's not a complete solution but it it, it should should help well, yeah. it is it is somewhat of a solution because in Phoenix we not only have vacant office space, but we have vacant mall space with uh, large um, big box stores. That's if that Amazon hasn't chewed it up already. Well, Amazon is going to close some of its facilities, so because they too have to, you know, the, it's very interesting because the economy is in the process of changing. And, and changing back. It's almost like the, the era of free money is over, you know? So all the spending that we did as a result of COVID is over and now people are gonna have to pay interest. And it's gonna be interesting to see what these developers, banks have to say, you know, this thing trickles both uphill and downhill. So you have the developer who might want to you know create multifamily housing with his empty office space and then you have the uh, lender to that developer saying you know I i'm not going to renegotiate that long because you renegotiated it on the basis of you know 25 dollars a square foot and if it's going to be multifamily, it's going to be a uh, 20 to, you know, 
two dollars a square foot. I think and zoning so, zoning has to change in several areas, including well, like too. California, that, even Toronto exactly. has a big issue. By the way, Lance on the call inside wanted to chime in. Lance, well, get him in, Lance. Yeah. You know, obviously we're talking about, uh, I'll just mention two quick things. Uh, depression era, right? Now, one is unrelated, but when they originally outlawed machine guns, like fully automatic, you know, 50 shots a second, we still don't, they're still, uh, those are still illegal, right? And it was the St. Valentine's Day massacre. It was a massacre of one gang massacring seven people from a rival gang. And yet we had the sensibility to say, whoa, this was horrible. It was, it was, it was, gang, it was gangland murder. It wasn't innocent people at malls. Where, how do we get where we are, right? Where, you know, Capone's gang and the Dutch gang kill each other. And we say, oh, my God, this is horrible. Let's outlaw guns. Here's another one. There was a farcical movie with Jimmy Durante, right? A farce. And so it was the day before prohibition. They passed. Hey, Lance, I'm just I'm just curious. Like the, the, the this talk is of the a room. room on homelessness. Yes, 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 Okay, yes, okay. Yes, sorry, yes, sorry. Yes, I, just, I wasn't sure what I, I did. Connected the two two different rooms here. Sorry about that. He's he's, he's getting there. I'll tie it in quickly. I'll tie it in quickly. Okay. Prohibition. Speaking of drugs and fentanyl and all this stuff, it was the prohibition on alcohol that created gangs. They were mishmashed, but then uh, they became the Capone, the, 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 the huge empires that they became was because of prohibition. So it was a joke where the, the, the gangsters were like, what are we going to do? We're not going to have our gig anymore. They're going to make it legal. And it was a joke. Okay, it was a joke movie. So we don't have the mafia in Capone anymore. We have the Sackler family who can be in the Johnson and Johnson family, right? These are families. These aren't like corporate bean counters. Okay. And they're responsible for hundreds of hundreds of thousands. They're responsible for not just the fentanyl, but the whole idea of getting people addicted. And yet we don't as a society say, stop. Okay. Homelessness. What we've done is Dostoevsky famously said, don't judge a society by how they, how you treat your accomplished citizens, judge a society by how you treat your prisoners. And what we've done is we've criminalized homelessness and mental and mental illness because it started in New York. We had horrible, horrible mental hospitals and it started the ball rolling in the seventies. They just let them all out. And that's what we have in the homeless now is people that we just choose not to care for. You know why it costs money, but listen, we can commodify these people by recycling them into jail. So what we've done is commodified people to the point where we can make money in prison, private prisons. We don't make any money by curing mentally ill. We don't make any money off home, but we can cycle them in and out of prison. Actually, let me put something in there. Let me put something into the conversation. What about, what do you guys all think about Blackstone and all these private equity funds that have actually amassed a huge amount of funding to buy up houses, to rent? Well, they they bought. That's another piece of it. They started in trailer parks. And could I just throw one last thing in, just as a positive? Because I squatted for about 10 months and I wasn't homeless. Huh? A positive. She's surprised was, you said a positive. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. But I mean, like Chris Hedges, you know, I think he's a positive force, even though everything he says is depressing. No, I squatted well, I for about 10 it. months. I squatted for 10 months in a whole house, in a house, and I just kind of wound up doing it. I wasn't going to be homeless, but I was doing a $50 crash on a couch with some harmless folks, but they had a lifestyle that I wasn't privy you know, into. And I was working part-time after 2008, $100 a week. That wasn't going to get me far. I joked about the house next door from some friends of mine. They said, oh, it's, go ahead and squat. Why don't you squat? I was like, ha ha. My friend jammed the electric together at the box at the house. I said, why not? I accumulated enough money to rent pay rent and security uh, at an apartment. So, I mean, I squatted for 10 months and I was, you know, two steps away from homelessness, you know, one step away, maybe. But what I'm wondering is, is there a squatters movement going on? I'm sure there is somewhere, but I, why not just take over buildings? Because it's legal if you do it right. I, I think, I think that that is a clever related solution to Greg's idea of turning uh, some of the empty office space into multifamily housing space. Um, To be clear, that wasn't my idea. I was just observing a trend that some states were doing. So is Adam Newman going to be like a a biggest uh, slumlord millionaire? Billionaire? Yes, that is the next step. Adam Newman just got a ton of money from Andreessen Horowitz, was it, to... um, to start something that 
he says is communal, but may end up just just being uh, putting people in small spaces and charging them big rents. There are a huge. First of all, let me go back a while. Let me tell you who I am. I'm Francine Hardaway. I'm an 81 year old person. That's all you need to really know about me because I have been around real estate markets and ups and downs and booms and busts for 81 years. And what I can see happening is the trends in the housing market are forcing out what we used to call household formations, meaning younger people who are trying to start a family who used to be able to get, um, for argument's sake, the GI Bill, you know, and now there's, there's no help for them. They instead graduate with student debt and the this, this student debt, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't make it easy for them to buy a home. Then we in Arizona, and I know this is going to go, you know, across the country, we are the victims of a trend toward developers buying large tracts of land and just making them into houses that will never be sold. They will always be owned by the developer. And it's not only Blackstone group payment, it's all kinds of people that they are actually building housing to be rental. Yeah. And, and so we are moving. Oh, go ahead, Susanna. Oh, no, when you have a moment, um, I do want to add to, to that about what's going on with the corporate the REITs and rents, and then also just a small suggestion of hope, but I didn't want to interrupt you, Barbara. No, interrupt me. I, I, I could talk all day. Interrupt me. Yeah, we'd love to hear uh, from you, Susanna. I've been unpacking and unpacking and unpacking with Wall Street because I realized to understand real estate today, I have to think like a hedge manager. I have to think like a fund manager, and so I've been interviewing fund managers to see how they are looking at not only acquisition of residential real estate, but rental acquisitions and how they're managing them because the normal supply and demand doesn't seem to be at play. And the little ray of hope that one would think with the economy that we're in now that, you know, as affordability is an issue, you would think rents would come down. What I've learned, unfortunately, is from a Wall Street perspective, as you just said, they have no intention of selling these properties ever. So they um, had pro formas for acquiring properties that were above market. A lot of our spikes in values across the country last year were also driven by reacquisitions because their way of analyzing acquisition of a home for rental or a building for rental is very different than what a typical buyer would do. And the move of capital from I don't want to be conspiracy theorist, but there was a massive move of capital out of Wall Street into Main Street, you know, and we see where Wall Street is right now. So whether they knew that was coming or not, I don't know, but it was the preservation of, they were looking for a return of capital, not return on capital. And that includes foreign funds. There was 59 billion of foreign money invested in US residential real estate for that purpose because of the instability in their economies they felt residential real estate would be a stable place to hold money, which drove our values up. Now, I was trying to look for that ray of hope to say, okay, just common sense, if people can't afford rent, you're gonna to have to lower rent. Unfortunately, what I've learned is, of course, the rent is like the dividend on the funds. So that would be the last thing that, like you said, it's not just black, the REITs would do is lower rent. And they are acquiring townships, they're acquiring developments, they're acquiring large tracts of land to do build to rent. It's, I call it the rentification of America. However, those rent rates are not fluctuating with the economy and with supply and demand and income the way they traditionally would because they're driven by having to show that dividend return to the stock, to their investors. And they can afford to have places vacant 
for periods of time. And the insurance that they use, this um, Desiree taught me, is uh, it's like blanket insurance policies that individual mom and pop investors like yourself or myself can't carry. We can't have properties vacant for three and four months. We have to reduce the rent and get a tenant in there. The REITs can, and they would prefer to hold them vacant to a certain extent. Wait, is extent. this my message of hope that you're delivering now? No, I'm saying that rents <laughs> aren't going down, even though affordability is a huge issue because of Wall Street's heavy investment. Now, yeah. the little ray of hope, you know, like that, that I'm always looking for that gap is for first time home buyers or people is, is the idea of house hacking, using that the rents are high I want to get people into ownership and even with interest rates being high and rents being high, for instance, if you buy a duplex or a triplex, live in one unit, the rents in the other unit help the owner qualify for their mortgage and can offset the high cost of ownership or the interest rate um, and benefit from this unfortunate dynamic. I think the reality is the dynamic's not going away and affordability continues to be an issue. So there's two little tiny guerrilla warfare <laughs> raise the hope that I'm promoting where I can. And then the other is simply modular homes. Um, where, you know, buying some, fixing up a modular home to live in for affordable housing has often been overlooked because it has a negative stereotype. Uh, it can be a ray of hope for, in some locations, obviously not everyone, every area has that. And there have been some where they're pricing people out of the mobile home parks as well but the multi-unit purchases is a small ray of hope you know to get into home ownership during this these turbulent times and then maybe buy that single family home in a couple years and Susanna actually raised an important thing that you guys have to it's like the canary in the coal mine sort of phenomena like the these trailer homes if you could think about it, that's sort of in the U.S. When you think about the stereotypical thing is trailer homes are some of the poorest people you think, right? And guess what? They're being evicted because all these private equity firms, not all, but a lot of firms have actually bought up these trailer right, park homes exactly. and jacked up the prices. Darlene actually was making some great points. Darlene, welcome up to the stage. You Darlene, come chat. Thank you so much. I just have to say, you know, the biggest elephant in the room is our educational system has just become broken. We keep on doing the same thing, expecting different outcomes, but we're only educating 30% of the people. People get out of high school, they immediately have children, and then the burden hits. We have such a dysfunctional process. In order for this to change is everybody has to have the ability to achieve something. And if it's home ownership or housing, then the program needs to be met to where you can start in a position because you know public school is mandatory it's compulsory in nature but people don't even understand what that means that means that we all pay and it's not about how much we pay because it's not about property taxes here in nevada is 3.5 percentage of your property value and i'm telling you they split the federal dollars amongst every child and every child here gets a free much but what everybody's not getting is a public education. And what can you do with minimum wage? I mean, I'm just so confused as to what we are not talking about. And oh, as- yeah. <laughs> you should be in the chat. The chat has all the places with all the things we're not talking about. <laughs> you, Dar- Darlene, you got the, one of the big ones. And they are all related. They and, are. And- truly. I mean, but, it- you know, when here in Nevada where they have they had like over 60,000 students that didn't have home addresses because they were living with someone else. And then they had to go through this whole process of trying to establish their right to be in the, on the bus and to have access to the public education system. As we're only talking about mandatory services, which we've given ourselves as a state the right to interfere into the family lives and remove children and perhaps not even provide a pathway for those young people to have their children back. This is not where we started. And in order for us to change, we all have to come up to the stage and accept that we are just broken. I think my mother's ringing the bell. You know, to to Darlene's to, point too. For one second. But, you know, I take care of my mother. She's 85. She has stroke and it's just, it's real for me. Yeah. Hold on one second. And okay, also to, I, I, I want to talk to Leland, who's on stage, and then Ariane in the chat has some really I, good... 
Okay, I just want to understand, as we have let the public education system fail, and we've had incidents like in Texas, where a child would have so much frustration and anger in their lives that not be able to manage it. And, you know, and it's very sad because I had a, a cousin that committed suicide. And it doesn't make sense because we're not communicating anymore. So we do have to look at the things, the elephants in the room, as to why people can't access certain resources. And how do we deal with this? It's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's an American issue. And right. we, have to take, we have to tackle it. And so... And And Darlene, sorry about your loss, but one thing also Darlene pointed out, the fact that, you know, schooling in the U.S., isn't it true that anywhere, isn't it true that you need to be in an address close to the school, the good schools, right? And to get that address, you need to have a home. No, honestly, I got to tell you, you know, smart people have created different pathways so that they could ensure that their children had access. And so Mm -hmm. supplanting is real. The federal dollars are never given to a state to support their wealthy children or children who wanted to be in STEM programs or children who wanted to be gate students or whatever. Although we do support gate children, we pay for children who are neglected and delinquent. We pay for the children who qualify for free and reduced lunch. English language learners, critical because we take those children at the border. Now, understand that every nation doesn't provide public education, but it's our people who are not making it. And when we look across the nation and understand why are there not train crossing guards at all the train tracks? We've had the rail system forever, but then an officer would pull a woman over, park his car on the tracks, and then she'd be hit and he'd run away. No time to get her off the tracks. That's a public safety issue. We have to look at ourselves because Michael said it. He was looking at the man in the mirror when he decided to state his case. He's not here anymore. And when Prince thought he could walk away and he had all that music that he had not declared during that contract negotiation, well, he's not here anymore either. We don't know what we don't know, but we do understand what we see. We cannot see homeless seniors walking the streets in Las Vegas, Nevada and pretend we don't see it. Because we do. And this is the thing that we have to hold accountable to elected officials, be they Democrat or Republican or independent. They still are Americans and we have to be heard. So thank you for letting me vent this morning. I had to go in here and check. Darlene, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. We love you. Thank you. I love you too, because guess what? Together we can stand. Yes, we will. I'm I'm here. In this housing thing, I'm in here for the kill or, you know, whatever, to, to the death, whatever metaphor you want to use. I um, just think, because if you look at Hawaii and let it be in a good example, most Hawaiians cannot afford to buy property in Hawaii anymore, even though they be native to the country. We are yeah. native to where we are born. And in America, the pathway to own home ownership should be a journey. So if we have to complete something, we should still have an opportunity to do so. But well, not having the opportunity. That is what Ariane said in the chat, that she has a $250,000 student loan, which mm-hmm. precludes her from buying a house. But on the other hand, she also said something brilliant to my mind, which is that in Arizona, there's no water. And we oh, we don't have it. any water either. <laughs> Lake Mead is drying up and the fish, oh, the right. fish don't even know which way to go. <laughs> and something uh, from the chat and water to combine the story, Max Wells mentioned that there was a woman in Florida who's actually looking for some support because she's become homeless. So if anyone wants to chime in in the chat, that'll be helpful too. All right, let's get Leland to speak and Kyle. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Yeah, I just... I was going to add like, my perspective on that homeless. Like, I've been living in downtown Fort Worth for like six years now. And I, I've been seeing a lot of what you are talking about with the commercial buildings. A lot of them over the last, ever since COVID, like a little bit after that, they've all been coming up empty. And most of like downtown Fort Worth is owned by the Bass Brothers, which are billionaires. So, you know, all these restaurant owners that own these restaurants, they're not even been able to renew their leases because the Bass Brothers are pretty much, well, they're not even really answering their calls. I've talked to a lot of restaurant owners. They're just kind of ignoring them but they're not renewing their leases, so they're all even downtown. There's 20, 30 restaurants and souvenir shops, and 
the Dallas Cowboys store, the Texas Stranger store. There was numerous stores. They're all shut down, and they all they're empty. And all you see is like they they draw up this artwork and stick it in the window so you can't see inside the building. And they've just been sitting there for like a year and a half empty now. And I guess what you are saying is they might be turning them into rentals for properties. Maybe that's what they're doing. It's kind of just weird because I've lived there for so long. I've just been seeing what's going on. And another thing, too, like a lot of the condos and apartments around there would give out, you know, if you designated seven or eight of these units for Section 8, then they would get huge tax breaks. So they would start doing the Section 8 on them all. But now Denton County, which is north of Fort Worth, they stopped doing Section 8. They're running Section 8 all together out of that city, which is going to start going off to Fort Worth, Dallas. So you're going to see a lot more of the homeless people because they're not even doing Section 8 anymore. I don't know if it's because they're not getting the tax breaks or just the owners and the the investors don't want them in there anymore because they're having to have, like, I live in a condo and I'm paying, like, if I'm paying, say, $2,500 a month to live in this, and the Section 8 guy is paying six or $800. So then you, it's, it's, you know, you have issues with that. But, you know, I walk my dog every day. This is where I was getting to. I walk my dog all the time in downtown. So I've became, like, I know all the homeless people that live there. They know me because I've seen them for, like, six years over the last, every day. I see the same faces all the time. And I talked to a lot of them, and a lot of them don't even, they're fine with being homeless. A lot of them are not, but there's a lot of them, they said they've paid their taxes, they've done their dues, and they don't want to be bothered. They're fine with living on the street. But then you got you know, some. And that's, and that's Leland, I noticed that in Phoenix. I walk my dog uh, along this canal, and it's, it's basically uh, a community of people in tents, and they're, they are happy some of them are very happy to be there because they don't want the government on their backs they 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 don't want to do uh what they would have to do to not be homeless so yeah but the problem is that for the neighborhood nobody wants them there and that's the problem too with the fentanyl addicts the fentanyl addicts who live in the park around other people's houses are upsetting the people in the park, you know, because there's a lot of property crime. When people run out of fentanyl, they just break into someone's house. And I, I, I don't like putting it that way, but that is what happens. And so the, then the property owner is furious. So it's, it's, not, it's not a good situation for anybody. Kyle. Yeah, exactly. I was also going to say, too, like, it, I've seen, say you sent somebody out there in the first couple of months, they act totally different. You know, they're they're normal people, but then as time goes on, and everybody thinks they're on drugs. They're like, oh, they're just wasted on drugs. But as time goes on, they don't eat mal- malnutrition and lack of sleep. They start acting weird. They start talking to themselves. They start doing weird stuff. But I think, you know, a lot of them that want to actually work and not be homeless, there should be a program. Right when they become homeless, they should be able to call a number on a hotline and say, Hey, I need to get into some kind of program right now to start finding my job before you get away from social society where you can't socialize anymore and you're out of the work game for too long. Because I see when they get out of not talking to people and they don't work for so long, they can't get going again. So if there was something to keep the ones who actually did want to keep working, call a number, get them back into work, find them jobs, you know, but that would help out a huge percentage of them. Yeah, and I think, I think it's the easy. There's just. There's a lot of them that do drugs, too, but I see, uh, like, the good ones that don't want to do drugs and do all this bad stuff are on one side of downtown, and the bad ones that come out of, they come out of prison, they steal everybody's stuff. They, yeah. uh, do Actually, we're generalizing stuff. a little bit there, though, I think, Leland. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're I, generalizing. I think, Kyle, Kyle, you wanted to chime in. Also, I think the key thing is we had realized is that before, like, before we think of work, you need something, some place to stay, some place to poop, some place to change, some place to shower, some place to eat, right? I think those are the basic necessities that people need. And then you could actually get them, you know, the suit. Like there are places that give out suits, business suits, and loan business suits out. They could go for that interview, right? But first you need them to be in a safe space, especially the women out there. And I I think someone mentioned that also in the, uh, Ariane, you mentioned that in the chat, that women being homeless is one of the scariest things. Sorry, Kyle is next. And And then Iris, and then we close out the room. Yeah, and Lance, I think, also was on the call inside of my sure. Oh, okay, Kyle. Kyle? 
Well, first of all, thank you, um, everyone who's in this room and partaking. It's amazing. Um, it's about time we tackle this issue. And it seems to me like people are more ready for it than they've been historically. Um, just anyways, within my community, for sure. Um, so one of the things I guess I will touch on um, about the drugs uh, Luan mentioned, it is very hard to tell if anyone's homeless or addicted or both. And um, one would then need to know about mental health and how that impacts a person's life. Um, and oftentimes these uh, people who are really struggling um, get judged as being drug addicts. And the other aspect to addiction is loneliness. Loneliness actually uh, contributes heavily to addiction. So um, community is very important to tackling addiction. And then housing, um, housing first is very important to tackling homelessness. Um, like Heyman said, um, you know, everyone thinks, oh, you just need a job. Well, I'm sure to get a job, you still need to be a little bit clean cut or presentable um, uh, to, to work through an interview or maybe have the opportunity to um, put together a resume to apply um, or at least uh, walk in presentably looking uh, to fill out an application for and uh, to pull all of that off, a house or a shelter would be required um, with basic amenities. And so this is, um, I, I just posted a bunch of articles, um, um, published journals uh, that, that talk about the housing first strategy. And this is um, definitely probably a deeper topic to get into because then it gets into incorporating um, what Dr. Francine brought up, uh, NIMBYism and also property developers and also government subsidies and also um, community support. So all of this kind of has to tie together in order for it to actually be pulled off correctly with the Housing First initiative. Um, there have been different places. Yeah, uh, I, re I really like the Housing First initiative. I love that. I love that. So yeah, so basically a lot of stakeholders need, and people who own properties within the vicinity um, need to all come to an agreement for it to actually work unless they actually uh, come to some sort of agreement um, that the developers are somewhat making some sort of profit that might come from the government. Um, these don't need to be big uh, houses. There are different houses and housing, um, uh, I guess, ideas that have been tried to be implemented, but this is where the bylaws come in and why bylaws or city laws or wherever the neighborhood is these lawmakers need to get with the times and realize that they need to come up with some real solutions because NIMBYism is just causing um, the problems to get worse and worse and worse. And, and I'll stop talking, but definitely uh, bylaws could be changed to allow some sort of uh, portable um, or um, um, uniquely designed, um, uh, convenient homes or shelters for tiny people. houses, even exactly, tiny houses. exactly. All right. Yeah, let's get. Can I add something, Dr. Francine? This is Tina. Sure, Tina. And then I, I usually close on time and I want to get an iris, so go ahead, add something. I'm going to be very short. I just wanted to say sorry about this little dog moment. Uh, so I wanted to say something, something about housing first. In Finland, uh, in 80s, uh, we had it, uh, like 50,000, uh, homeless people. And, uh, uh we have 5.5 million people in 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 Finland, which is a small country, today we have only five thousand in whole country uh, homeless because of the first uh, house housing project. And of course, something what uh, we realize in in eighties, we start to build these houses uh, somewhere where you uh, probably will find people who own their houses, students, you will have families, and then, of course, uh, this uh, government founding uh, first uh, houses project. And what was the um, reason why they went so well was uh, they gave the whole assistant 
for these homeless people. Uh, this was medical assistant and it was also psychological assistant. And they kept going like five or ten years with them. And therefore, the problem uh, is kind of we don't have at the moment because most of these people don't really have very, very uh, uh, deep housing problems. They just want to be free and they want to live, for example, in their caravans or something. So we don't have that uh, kind of uh, tent villages or or, or criminal uh, problem with homelessness because we can always give them uh, house first project and then give services, mental services and psychological services. So thank you very much for having me, uh, Dr. Francine. And Iris, did you want to chime in there? Oops. Thank no, you, I Tina, for sharing that uh, that success story. And, and Finland is unique too in the sense that the values and also the fact that it's a freezing cold country, so people would freeze to death if they were homeless on the streets. Exactly. But at least Finland took took a stand and took action. And that's what I think we need to do. So Francine, I know we're at top of the hour. Do you want me to summarize or anyone else? Iris, if you want to say. Yeah, maybe I can. Uh, hi, yeah, hi everyone. Thank you for hi. the stage. Uh, very, very important topic, I think. Just want to have to add a few points. First of all, um, I was involved in some projects here in Israel rega regarding homelessness. One of the things that was looked at very, very carefully was the hygiene and the medical situation of, of the people. And what what they did here, which was something really interesting, they, they brought in these mobile showers and 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 first of all to have in the shelters uh, to make sure that that you know people can really uh, wash themselves and and not feel um not feel uncomfortable that's one thing the other thing that we faced here is youth uh, homelessness which is a completely different uh, um homelessness mostly what what had to be involved here are psychologists and and a lot of of psychology work and some other uh, methods of, of dealing with youth that, that are being homeless in, in families that, 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 that are homeless. So, so these two things I just wanted to say, I know it's the end of the room, I can talk a lot about the projects that we did with them and the, and the community, how they got involved in it, but that's my two cents on that. Thanks so much. Thank you, Iris. Barbara, let's yeah. make sure we do a room on youth homelessness. Yes, I yes, I would love issue. to bring that some really is. cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So here is thank you. Issue. So let's yeah. do that. All right. Yeah. Thank Barbara. you. Thank you, Iris. Beautiful uh, way to summarize it and for us to take action. So I wanted to summarize is we can all do something. All of us. All of us. Yeah. The first thing we can do is stop generalizing and let's get intelligent about it, you know, by standing in people's shoes who are homeless because they have different stories. I've done this. And I, I, I was in New York and I was talking to a woman who was, you know, with a cup on the street, pregnant, uh, African-American woman, and her story broke my heart, you know, and I took action and helped her out, all of that. I don't want to blow my own horn per se here. I just want to contribute to this and share my own personal story. When I was 13 years old, I was born and raised in Copenhagen and a mother got up in the middle of the night in a drunken stupor and threw me out, threw me up, just threw me up. And I went and I walked on the street at two in the morning and I had no idea where to go. And I never wanted to go back ever, ever. I was so upset. So I stayed at the train station and if it wasn't, and I stayed there for like a week. And if it wasn't for a teacher that bumped into me at the train station saying, Barbara, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And, uh, and he said, is there anybody I can call? And I said, you can, don't call anybody. Do not call anybody. Anyway, make a long story short, she, he insisted. And I said, you can call my grandmother. And I got saved. But what if I didn't have that? What, where would I have ended up? What would have happened? God knows. And there are these stories out there. So I think- Well, that's we could, the youth homelessness story, so. Exactly. So let's get a room done 
and let's all take action wherever you can, wherever area you are in the world or in the States or Canada or elsewhere. Is there something we can do even just by speaking up, you know, and, but engage, let's not, I started this room calling, we all have double apathy. We don't care that we don't care. I'm not one of them. And I don't think there's a single person here that is one of them, but there are people out there who just walk, ignore whatever's going on in this. Right. And I, I fostered and that was my way of combating it. So there are ways that we can all help. Yes. And we just need to do it. So Iris, thank you. Tina, thank you. Darlene, thank Thank you for your beautiful share. Jay, Heyman, Rick, Dr. Francine, of course, always. And I look forward to that room and let's take action on that as well. Yes, it's going to be Over to you, Dr. Francine. And always, always I close the room by saying I love you. I love everybody who took the time to show up and listen and talk and be part of the conversation. Scotty had some good points in the chat that I didn't have time to bring out. But, you know, again, everyone can be part of the solution. And Iris, we're going to get you back. We're going to talk about youth homelessness. Wonderful. We're going to talk, talk about showers. I love yes. that. Love you, Dr. Right. We love you, Dr. Francine. We love I'm you. I'm going to close the room. Yes, we love you all. Take care, all. Take care. Take care, and thank you very much for joining from the call inside as well. I'm closing the room. Take care.